When we talk about cultural differences and diversity, so the big question is what kind of differences we are talking about. So we grouped those into two big categories. One was personal differences, so things that you can easily see about myself or things that relate to me personally. And then we had background differences, so that's more the kind of country you come from, uh, the kind of environment you grew up in. And then we wanted to know, well, does it matter? But then the question becomes, matters for what? So I would love to hear more about it. Tell us about X culture. I will actually brag first. Please. So as of last <laughs> semester, we crossed the 100,000 uh, participant mark. So as of today, we have uh, had 103,000 participants. Welcome to International Business Today where we discuss the most critical issues in international business with top academic experts and thought leaders. I'm Paula Kellajuri, a professor in the International Business and Strategy Group at Northeastern University's DeMorma Kim School of Business, the sponsor of this podcast. Today, I am so happy to be joined by Vas Taras. Vas is a professor of management at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He's also the ex-culture project director, and I am so excited to talk to him about that. Vas has expertise in the area of global virtual teams and crowd-based business problem-solving. Vas, welcome to International Business Today. Thank you so much for having me. You have been a luminary in the area of cross-cultural differences, and I'd love to hear some of your insights on kind of cross-cultural differences and maybe diversity. Um, so when we talk about cultural differences and diversity, so the big question is what kind of differences we are talking about. And so we recently published a study where we decided to look at every possible difference. So we had about 20 different, so cultural differences, demographic differences, differences in economic systems of the countries people come from, and things like that. And so we grouped those into two big categories. One was personal differences, so things that you can easily see about myself or things that relate to me personally. And then we had background differences, so that's more the kind of country you come from, uh, the kind of environment you grew up in. And then we wanted to know, well, does it matter? But then the question becomes, matters for what? So we looked at every possible outcome, um, propensity to engage in conflicts, quality of work you do, timeliness, all kinds of things. And we divided those into two groups. So we had the task performance, so basically everything related to the actual output. And we had the process performance or psychological outcomes, so how well you get along with your team members. And so what we found was that personal differences can be problematic for psychological outcomes. So if we are different, communication becomes a little bit more different, uh, a little bit perhaps less interest in engaging with one another, maybe a little bit more tension. So some conflicts happen and things like that. Uh, personal differences didn't matter that much for the performance outcomes, but uh, the background differences were actually very positive. So it seems like if we come from different backgrounds. Uh, the kinds of knowledge you have is different from the kinds of knowledge I have. The kinds of um, connections you have, people you can rely on are different. And so we end up with apparently more ideas on the table. And bigger. so, yeah, so that's, you know, we have more, more information to work with. And then, yeah, the decisions are better. The quality of work is better. So the consulting reports, for example, the teams that we studied did were better. So, so yeah, when we say cultural differences or differences, it seems we need to specify what differences and then what kind of what, outcomes the outcome we're looking, we're looking at. Yeah, yeah. And that that's so important, too, to remember, kind of don't stereotype, yeah. right? We're all comprised of all of the values that have been socialized into us 
When we talk about value differences, there could be lots of different things, exactly. not just the exactly. country in which you yeah. were born. Yeah. And so you you do a lot of work with this with X culture, and it is really thousands of people are now going through that every year. So I would love to hear more about it. Tell us about X culture. I will actually brag first. Please. So as of last <laughs> semester, we crossed the one hundred thousand uh, participant mark. So as of today, we have uh, had one hundred and three thousand participants. But yes, it all started um, in twenty ten. Uh, so it was shortly after I, uh, I had relocated to the University of North Carolina in Greensboro, and I found myself in this difficult situation where I am in front of the classroom, and I'm trying to explain to my students that um, doing business with, for example, Ukrainians is different than doing business with Americans. And my students look at me and uh, don't quite understand what I'm trying to say. So the feeling is as if I'm trying to teach them how to swim on a football field. <laughs> you know, you need to get in the water to learn how to swim. And uh, to learn international business, you have to have international experience. And so not everyone, in fact, most students in North Carolina have not been overseas. And I was trying to find a way to give them that international experience. And I thought, well, if I could find a professor in a different country who also teaches international business, and we would take our students and put them in international teams, then they would be dealing with time zone differences, cultural differences, institutional differences. So the things that I'm trying to explain through lectures. And so this way, they will not have to believe me. They will have, you know, will we'll experience it. And so I sent out an email uh, through the Academy of International Business asking if anyone wants to participate. And within hours, I got a few emails back. And so we had seven uh, universities, seven schools the first time. And then since then, it's been growing and growing. And so last semester, we had about 6,000 students, 180 universities, about 70 uh, countries, depending on how you count. So it's more than 100 by nationality, but about 70 by the location of students. And so we place them in teams of about seven, each one from a different country. So when we say they experience cultural differences, they have some serious real cultural differences. And uh, yeah, so they work for a semester across all of those challenges and uh, kind of learn international business by doing international by business. By doing it. And do they change in terms of their competencies? So we actually have studied that extensively. So we know that cultural intelligence improves from pre to post and also compared to the control group. We know that interest in uh, working with people from other cultures improves, confidence and ability to work with people from other cultures improves. Um, we know that uh, so some students like it so much that they participate multiple times, mm -hmm. and we have some who do it like at the undergraduate level and then move on to a different school for masters, and then they have exculture again. So we know when they do it the second time, the uh, second timers are much more likely to be um, uh, leaders. They communicate much, much more, so much more frequency of communication. Uh, the teams perform better, produce better quality of work. So we know that it seems to do something that improves uh, the outcomes. So it does seem to to have a positive impact. Not to mention that, again, shameless bragging, oh, but when you look at the <laughs> satisfaction, right. post-project satisfaction, not everyone is happy. But if you compare the distribution to, like, for example, the latest iPhone or the latest Samsung or whatever product, we actually have more satisfied customers. <laughs> so it's about 95% give us the perfect maximum. Another 3% give us, like, yeah, that was good. That and then there is always, like, 1.5% who say, well, it was too much work or... No, but generally, so at least that we know that also uh, leaves students with very happy, sort of satisfied, uh, you know, we receive very positive feedback. Sure. I think everything with experiential learning, yeah. especially it's, it's, it's yeah. you know, bound in that they can achieve it within one semester. And 
It's yeah. doing all the right things to help build yeah. those confidence. Yeah, it pleases me most when students send me emails sometimes later, uh, years later. So they would say, hey, professor, I took your course three years ago, five years ago. You may not remember me, but you know what? I'm doing actually now something that requires me to work with people from around the world. And I constantly think about that experiment or that project that we did at UNCG. So thank you so much. I'm like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's such a powerful experience. I wonder, is there any way that companies can replicate it and, and do um, that? I mean, naturally, they work collaboratively around the world, but is there something, what's the secret sauce within X culture that we could use within companies to replicate? So not only replicate, but I would even say maybe embrace. So when we started X culture, uh, for the first year probably, we would give students a hypothetical task, just simply work on this case study. Then in 2013, one of our professors was doing a consulting project with Mercedes-Benz. So they were trying to develop some sort of a strategy for Africa for trucks and buses. And so they were looking for ideas for that, stra you know, for that marketing uh, campaign. And they thought that it would be a good idea to reach out to our students and ask for input. And I thought, okay, sure, it makes it a little bit more real for us. So the students did a very good job. In fact, they impressed the company so much. We even had um, um, a symposium at the Mercedes-Benz factory in Istanbul, Turkey. So that's where they make buses and trucks from uh, basically a roll of metal all the way to where you put the key in the ignition and start the truck. And so since then, we would have about a dozen clients each semester who come to us with real-life challenges, and students are trying to solve them. And so uh, for the companies, there are sort of two big you know, things that they can learn from us. One, obviously, we have about a thousand teams each semester uh, where not only some teams do better than others, but where a thousand things can go wrong and a thousand uh, of, you know, good things happen, serendipitous encounters and things like that. So we do massive amounts of research and we have a lot of interesting insights that um, companies that employ people from diverse backgrounds, people who work in global virtual teams, that they can learn from us. But second is this whole idea of crowdsourcing. So apparently when you have a large number of people working on the same challenge, even if they're not true experts per se, just the sheer number. So somebody is bound to bring you something that nobody knew. Somebody is bound to have heard something that is useful for this problem, know someone, read something, or just serendipitously just thinks of th something. So we've had companies that changed names, uh, changed packaging because students told them that, you know, a better idea. We had companies that hired our students. They said, oh, who wrote this? I, I, yeah. <laughs> So here, as I said, those it's students not, loved the project, yeah. right? <laughs> well, as one of the um, uh, one of the CEOs once said, and that kind of struck me, he said, "Working with you, it's like uh, sending ants in all directions to look for a candy. If somebody dropped a candy somewhere, somebody will just stumble upon it. So it's not that the students are smarter than the professionals; just there are so many of them. So it just, you know, pure statistics. You know, somebody is bound to come up with something good." And so this idea of crowdsourcing may be something that businesses need to think more about. Like, look at, you know, like, for example, Encyclopedia Britannica uh, existed for, what, like almost 300 years, uh, monopoly almost, you know, undisputed leader. Wikipedia comes along, a bunch of amateurs, you know, well, a thousand of them or thousands of them. In a matter of years, they essentially displaced the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uber, I mean, I'm not sure if there are taxis here in Boston, but in my city, Uber killed professional taxi companies, Airbnb, same thing. So uh, it seems, you know, when it comes to business decision-making, if you organize the crowd the correct way, the crowds can do to business consulting what uh, Wikipedia did to the Encyclopedia Britannica. 
So I'm not sure if crowds can one day displace the Boston Consulting Group or McKinsey, but they sure can be, if not competition, at least augment professional consultants because it's a very different approach to, to solving problems. And uh, my experiments, at least so far, say that crowds can be extremely effective at some types of problems. Like which ones? So crowd-based problem solving works well, well when? <laughs> that's a very good question. So some problems, you obviously don't need a crowd. Like if I need to tie my shoe, I don't need a crowd <laughs> for that. Or if I need to design a nuclear reactor, you probably want to have a bunch of professional nuclear physicists. But if you need to, for example, develop the most creative marketing campaign, if you need to decide on the best uh, price or features for a product, if you, for example, most of the clients who come to Exculture, they seek to expand into new markets. So they want us to collect data globally, find the most promising markets, uh, develop the marketing strategy, logistics strategy, um, competition analysis. So the sheer number of students here, first, it's easier to do it because you have so many people. Second, uh, like, for example, if it involves, let's say, you know, talk to five potential distributors and ask what they think about our product. For one company to conduct that research in 70 countries, it would cost millions of dollars. With thousands of students that we have, everybody talks to five or 10 people and you have this giant global survey. If you know the company asks, um, for example, what would be the most promising market? If one consultant says Germany is the most promising market, that's useful, that's interesting, you can read rationale. But if you have a thousand teams doing research for you and 750 of them say Germany is the most promising market, that probably means something. So things like that, um, um, logistics, for example, or competition analysis. Yes, one team will not give you the exhaustive list of competition, but if you have a thousand teams looking for competitors, once you compile everything, it probably will be a, a very, very comprehensive list. Uh, you know, things like that. So yes, you can have professional consultants who can do the same work for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but even then I bet they will not be able to be as effective because we are sort of, we offer kind of global expertise locally because we have people in all of those countries on the ground. So if your company name doesn't sound right in that language, they probably will know it. If the color of your packaging is not a good fit for whatever culture they have, again, they will know it. So you can have the best experts here in Boston, but how much can they know about every country on the planet? We have participants in pretty much every country or almost in every country. And so that's where we could be very, very useful. But like you said, it's not when a certain skill level is needed. Like. <laughs> Like physicists the, or something, you're, you don't want Yes, to. so it would be probably more effective when it comes to sort of more generic creative tasks. So we looked at sort of where the effectiveness come from. And so one, it would be, as I said, serendipity. So just someone by sheer luck comes up with a great slogan or uh, by luck, you know, just knows the right person at the right, you know, potential distribution company or read something that is very relevant. So that's one. So that's serendipity. Another one is compilations. As I said, you know, either looking for every possible competitor or looking for every possible feature your product could have or um, conducting some other, you know, like, for example, every possible uh, client for this company. Again, one single company will not give you the full list, but once you compile it and then run some sort of, you know, like pivot table type of, type of summary, you'll probably have a more comprehensive list than, a, you know, a bunch of small group of consultants can come up with. So serendipity, compilations, and then third, averages. Like, for example, what is the perfect price for our product? Or, uh, for example, what is um, the most suitable market? So you look at the average or you, you look at the mode, the most common answer. Those tend to sort of converge around something that is probably close to what it should be. Again, if you ask, you know, how much a mug like this should cost in Ghana, 
uh, I don't know, the consultants can run some sophisticated statistical analysis, will give you a number, probably a good number. But you ask, it's essentially like a huge global focus group. And so if most of them converge around, let's say, 20 bucks, yeah, I would believe that. Or at least it will give you some idea of what people think the price should be. And uh, so that, that seems to have a lot of value. Global market yeah, research. Yeah. Clients always love also to include questions like, you know, like when the students do SWOT analysis, so what are our sort of shortcomings, limitations, you know, or threats? And again, like, oh, never thought about that. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, for example, you know, us versus the competition. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know who the competition is. But then, oh, you think that's our limitation? Hmm. Actually, you know what? That might be right. Sorry, totally. Especially if, you know, like hundreds of people work on the challenge and 80% of them point out the same thing over and over again. Interesting. Yeah, never thought about that. So you think we should have this option on the menu here? Yeah, maybe we should. So never thought about that. So, How about the functioning of the teams themselves? So is there some insights that you've gained from X-Culture from watching thousands of teams go yeah. through these projects? that you could say, hey, companies would really benefit if they ran their global teams like this. Well, so here I will get maybe into some things that are were very unexpected for us and also in many cases mean that some fixes are very easy and some perhaps may be very hard. Um, so I'll start with what was unexpected but turned out to be extremely predictive of problems in teams. Um, so um, we have a test that students need to prepare for and take before we place them on teams. And for a long time, we looked at the percentage of correct answers the students give on the test and used that as a kind of selection tool. And then... Um, uh, Were you using it to, com to compensate so you had stronger students with... No, no. So more because or... it's a team-based project, we don't want a sort of slackers on the team. Got it. And so we have 80% threshold you must answer 80% oh, okay. of so the questions correctly. Yeah, so if you cannot answer 80% of the questions, we start asking then um, language fluency not good enough or uh, discipline is missing or whether the person is incompetent. And if so, do we want that person on the team because the rest of the team will suffer? So we used to look at the percent of the answers that have been answered correctly. Then we were doing some research with some guys from IT, and so they were interested purely in the technical side. And turns out Qualtrics, when you download the data, it gives you one more column that I always just deleted, and that is percentage of the questions attempted. And who cares how many questions they attempt? Uh, turns out that is much more predictive of the... So if they attempt not all 100%, of, like if they attempt only about 85, 90% of the questions, they can still get the passing grade. But usually those are almost guaranteed they will not show up for meetings. They will, right. So And we're like, okay, so now we, we deliberately made the test longer. And now I pay more attention to the percentage of questions attempted rather than correct. I still look at correct, obviously, that's still an issue. But so this sort of, uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that on camera, but we call it the butt time. So it's basically sitting on your butt and actually doing the work. <laughs> so that actually matters a lot because, you know, ideas are easy, great plans are easy, but sitting down and actually doing it, that is a huge, huge factor. So, so, so the advice for companies might be to look for the most motivated and, and, and motivated even not in, in the way of most excited, but yeah, conscientious, someone who actually will do the work. So that is very important. Um, another thing again, so and could, this could be bad news for the managers, uh, and I apologize if they're watching. So another sort of unexpected thing that uh, my assistant actually discovered. So we asked professors, who in this case would be the bosses of the teams, 
to submit um, uh, the information in a certain format. So we need the names of the students, but we need them in first, last name format with proper capitalization because foreign names, I don't know what is the first name, what is the last name. Some professor, and for example, the files they send to us, it's an Excel file. I ask it in Excel file so it's easy to merge. I ask that the name of the file is the professor's name because again, with hundreds of professors, hard to. So there are some professors who would send us the names like all capitalized or, you know, Smith, John, or the file name listening. is the final <laughs> list uh, copy three. And so my assistant turns out just kept sort of the naughty list. So was kept keeping the naughty she called, list. I love she it. called it strikes. So every time something is missing in that file, like, you know, if it's not proper capitalization, not proper order, not proper font, she would say strike. What we discovered is the professor gets three strikes, almost guaranteed, like half of the class will drop out. Half of the class will not show up for meetings. So it seems like we, we are obsessing with, you know, trying to figure out how personality correlates and it does correlate of with course. performance. But if I know that the boss, the, the professor cannot follow simple instructions, I don't know what happens next. Probably they do not give students proper instructions. Maybe they do not, I don't know, motivate. So the conscientiousness yeah. is affecting and, the, the. And yes, and team. if half well, of the class. Yeah, if half of the class, uh, because each student is on a different team. So if half of the class get kicked out from the teams, I bet it's not because the students are not smart enough. I mean, there must be, it must be something with that professor who could not fill out a simple form correctly. And so uh, I'm not sure if it would be the solution to all problems, but good management seems to be a big, big factor. But then obviously we do a lot of research on cultural intelligence, which always comes out as very strong predictor. Uh, cultural diversity, again, more diverse teams, as I said, do have some problems on the personal level, but tend to produce better quality work. So here we haven't decided if we want to make them more or less. One interesting thing... Think, would, make them more diverse because it's a learning yeah, opportunity, guess, yeah. right? They and, learn, and the to learn how to work through the, yeah. the challenges in order yeah. to become... Yeah, and even effective. if they end up with enemies on five continents, <laughs> we do produce better quality <laughs> well, of work. Let's work on that. Get them <laughs> yeah. the competency so they don't make yeah. yeah, those enemies beforehand. So uh, things like that. It's all, so It's all great work. Yeah. Um, one interesting discovery we made recently... Um, uh, so there was this great example. Um, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So uh, um, there was one. Forgot. <laughs> was it an example with the students? Uh, oh yes, yes. So um, since you mentioned how to form the teams, so you said you know more diverse, less diverse. So one thing we looked at was all stars versus sort of bona fide slackers, and so uh, we tried to deliberately form some teams that are comprised of like absolutely best students, you know, come from top universities, uh, get a perfect hundred on the readiness test, like everything checks out, you know, like perfect students, perfect GPA. And so we would form some teams that I call all stars where like all six or seven students are like, you know, like superstars. And then we have all kinds of mixed teams. And then we have some that, you know, do not pass the test on the first try. Slackers. slackers, like basically, you know, like People who would not, you know, barely pass the test sometimes on the second try, come from a school you've never heard about, you know, things like that. And so we wanted to see if the all-star teams perform better than average teams. And then obviously we didn't expect much from the slackers. So we would form some almost apologetically because, you know, I, I like feel sorry that they have to be on the team with everyone who barely passes the threshold. And so what we discovered is that it's actually quite interesting. So it turns out that we always see the same dynamics. Even in the all-star team, there is always one or two who take the lead, one or two who sort of help, and there is always one or two who sort of 
take it easy and well you guys you got it under control so well you know and then even if you have the most you know sort of based on the initial indicators that sort of the the barely passed the the test uh, for a while they may struggle but then there is always someone well they're not doing anything they're not doing anything maybe we should i should do something and so they take the lead and so in the end they also do a pretty good job and then somebody starts helping them and so in the end so we didn't find much difference between all stars and between all slackers and so the idea for that study actually came from some research in the 50s where they would put um, rats uh, usually six of them in a cage but the food would be across it like a pool of water and so you need to cross the cold water pool to get the food. And so they discovered that no matter how you mix and match those rats, there is always someone who just goes and gets the food. But when they come back, there are always bullies who don't want to get in the water, but they steal the food. And there are always those who submissively just give up the food and always those who would uh, fight back and keep their food. And so they would notice that there are always like one or two bullies, then one or two as they call workers. And usually there is one or two who get basically, you know, beaten up. And that seems like what we see. So no matter how you, and then even if you take then bullies and put them in one team, you still see the same dynamics. Then, you know, they get hungry, some bullies give up and go get the food, and then the bigger bullies bully them even more. Mm -hmm. And so what we see in our teams is that, as I said, you know, if it's a great team, people think, well, why should I work hard? It seems like the rest of my team is doing a great job. I'll just relax and just watch how they're working. And if it's a weak team, somebody says, well, we cannot do nothing. So, well, I better take the lead. And so that's an interesting dynamics that we see no matter how we slice and dice the teams. Boy, you're, you are certainly underscoring the need for team leaders and managers a huge to, deal, yeah. to very much understand how the yep. team's performing and do, you know, progress checks and yeah. make sure everybody's pulling their weight past. Thank you so much for, for this. Do you have any last piece of advice for the business professionals out there who want to do global work or maybe are on a global team? Any Word of wisdom? Um, well, it seems like following COVID especially, so when we talked about global virtual teams, it was primarily global, you know, virtual because they're global. So it's too far to go wherever you are and meet face to face. It seems like following COVID, uh, many employees have gotten used to working from home. And so many companies also see benefits of employees working from home, I guess, less sure. expense on, you know, office space and things like that. And so it seems like uh, this virtual collaboration now is becoming more common even in domestic context. And then on the other hand, uh, with people having finally gotten used to Zoom, I still remember the time a few years ago we had to teach people how to use Zoom, how to use Google Docs. Uh, COVID was horrible, but the good outcome is that everyone at least now knows how to use online collaboration tools. And so now that everyone knows how to use it, many companies are more open to hiring people from other countries because all of a sudden, yeah, it doesn't matter where they are. We all know how to use Zoom or whatever tools they use. And so it seems to me that we will see more and more acceleration in, in, in adoption of global virtual teams. And yes, it's a very different dynamics. It's a very different type of relationship. Uh, people don't know each other at the same level. So there is less sort of um, social recipro reciprocal obligation to one another. Uh, we don't have the proverbial water cooler where we can bump into each other and talk about the weather or the last Red Sox game or uh, whatever else people talk about. So you have this very different uh, dynamics where we primarily talk about work and not connect at the personal level. And so here, that's what the managers should prepare for, uh, expect, but also plan how to manage these kinds of teams because they're very different types of teams than when you are in the same office every single day have coffee together over lunch, maybe get together sometimes for a birthday party after the, uh, the meeting. So 
um, very different types of dynamics. And so I predict that it will be happening more and more. And yes, managers get ready for the brave new world, I guess. And hopefully all the people that they're bringing onto their teams have been through X culture. Yes, Russ, thank yes. you. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much for being a part of International Business Today. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for today's episode of International Business Today. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your network. As always, we'd love to hear from you. 